But this morning we come to Revelation 22, the last chapter in all of God's holy word. And this morning we're going to consider two portions from this text that tie together very neatly. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump ahead and consider verses 12 through 17 as we consider uh, the river of life that John sees in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, this river of life that waters the trees of life and that assures us of God's promise to refresh and to encourage us for all eternity in Christ. Let's give our attention this morning, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 12 through 17. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of the living God. The Apostle John says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. In verse 12, Jesus speaking says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And may God now bless us as we consider his word this morning. It's amazing to me how much can change in a 24-hour period. Maybe you've had situations like this in life. Maybe it was changed in a good way. You weren't sure you were going to get that new job that promised so many blessings to you, and then one morning, out of the blue, you seem to get a phone call, and you get that new job. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's something bad that changes in your life. You're going along one day, and next thing you know, you're getting a call that has news that devastates your life, and everything changes within just a moment. Well, I know that at least for one woman in the Bible, one day made a great deal of difference. In uh, John chapter 4, Jesus encounters this woman. You might know her as the woman at the well. Maybe you know her as the Samaritan woman. But he meets with this woman in his journeys on his preaching. And it's very interesting how in just one conversation with the Lord Jesus, everything about her life transforms and changes. Uh, she comes to the well outside of her city seeking to get water, as you would do in those days. She comes out with her bucket, and she's ready to draw this water from the well, and she encounters Jesus at the well. And she goes away from there 
completely transformed. She comes looking for one thing, but she goes away with something entirely different, and in fact, entirely better. She comes looking for well water, and she leaves with living water. That's the promise that Jesus gives us in his word. That's the promise that John hears about in Revelation chapter 22, the promise of living water. It's very interesting how God orchestrated the writing of his word and how the book of Revelation so neatly and perfectly closes out the entire story of Scripture. If you did a comparison between Revelation 21 and 22 and Genesis 1 through 3, you would see that they are matching bookends. You would see that what is happening in the end of all things is that God is tying up with a neat little bow the story of his creatures. We see how uh, this loss that was experienced in the start of God's word and the fall from sin and how everything is restored in Christ. We see how uh, we go from having deadness in our spirits to having life in our spirits. We see how we go from being blocked from paradise to now in Christ having paradise reopened for us. That's what that woman at the well experienced, that what Christians experience, that's what you and I experience this morning as we hear from God and as we have his promise assured in our hearts, this promise that there is an open invitation to paradise for all who come to God through Christ. If we went back to the very beginning, we would see what you might call paradise lost, uh, of course, stealing that from the very famous uh, extended poem uh, from John Milton, Paradise Lost. This loss that we experience all the way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, our ancestors, uh, our first parents, were tempted away from obedience to God and tempted away from the wonderful life of intimacy with God. That life that they lost because of their sin and their disobedience. That disobedience then brought a separation between them and God. That disobedience brought a curse on all the world. In fact, you and I live in a world that is full of suffering and pain today because of that original sin that led us away from God. And perhaps uh, worst of all, we lost access to the tree of life, this tree that promised blessing and eternal life. God barred us from it. He uh, blocked us from ever getting back to it on our own. And now you and I live in a, a world plagued by a sense of wrongness, do we not? You turn on the TV, you go places around the world, and everywhere you go, there is this very clear and present sense that something is wrong here. Something is wrong about this situation. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the heart of man. We have an idea of what the world ought to be like. You can go and talk to even the most uh, ardent, atheist, unbelieving person, and they still have some idea in their minds of an ought to. The problem of evil is based on this reality that we have some idea in our minds of what the world should be. And it's not like that. There's a wrongness to all things. We long for that sense of home and peace and goodness that we lost because of our sins. We try to fill that desire with all kinds of things. We try to experience all that life has to offer. This is that feeling that desire that drives people to do the things that we do. 
Why did Alexander the Great conquer the world? Why do you and I want to travel the world and see all that the world has to offer? Why do we strive and sweat and toil and work? Why do we get stressed and have anxiety and fear? It's because deep down we know that something is not right. Something is wrong in the world. And although we might look for all kinds of answers, like that woman at the well, we find that they never really satisfy. See, that woman who came to the well to get water that day, she had been coming to that well every day. She had to come every single day. And then she meets Jesus. And she finds that in Jesus, there is a satisfying answer. In Jesus, there is an answer for that sense of wrongness. And there is an answer to the sin that has separated her from God. There is an answer for the curse and the plague that all mankind has lived under. And it is open to all who come to Christ. See, we, we lost paradise because of our sins, but in Christ, paradise is reopened. The doors are opened wide again for all who would come in the name of Jesus. Christ came to solve this problem of sin and to reopen paradise for all his people. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Even the way Jesus died, the fact that he died on the cross, he couldn't die any other way because the cross was the only cursed death. To hang on a tree was how you be, see, you be seen as cursed by God. And Jesus has to be made a curse for us so that he might take away the curse from us. The reason that John in Revelation 22 can say that there's no more curse is because Jesus took the curse on himself at the cross. The reason that the tree of life can be reopened to man so that we can now go into God's paradise again is because Christ died on a tree of death. Christ reopens the way to paradise for all who come to him, but it's only through the cross. The cross is the only answer. The cross is the only way. That's why Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's many people in this world who like certain aspects of Jesus. They like Jesus, the good moral teacher. They like Jesus, the wise prophet who can speak truth to God or speak truth from God, rather. They like Jesus, the good example who they can strive to live their life patterned after. Even Gandhi, seeing the uh, hypocritical behavior of Christians in his day, even Gandhi could say, uh, I love your Christ. It's your Christians I have a problem with. But did Gandhi really love Christ? No. He loved his own idea of Christ, but he didn't love Jesus as he was presented in the Bible. And he certainly didn't love the cross of Jesus, the only answer for our sin. See, it's one thing to think you want Jesus. It's another thing to realize that the cross of Jesus is the only answer for your problem. It's one thing to say, I want Jesus according to my own desires, Sort of want to build your own Jesus, right? And go to Build-A-Bear Factory. Well, I want to build my own Jesus, right? I want this stuff. I like these things. I like the red letters. 
But, you know, I don't like the cross. And I don't like the, the thought even that the cross is what I need. That makes me feel bad about myself. It's very interesting. If you go read in John 4 this interaction that Jesus had with the woman at the well, he's hard on her. It's a hard conversation he has with her. He doesn't pull any punches. He calls out her sin. He tells her she doesn't understand who God really is. He insults her religious belief and her, her spiritual intelligence. He tells her, you don't understand what you worship. Right? You're worshiping God, but you don't understand it. You don't understand him. We understand him because salvation is of the Jews. He calls her out on her sin. He tells her, go get your husband. And she tells him, I have no husband. What did he say to her? You're right. You have had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. He calls out her sin. It's a difficult conversation. But through that difficult conversation, she comes to salvation. And she comes to understand who Christ really is. And that the man standing in front of her can really give a satisfaction that no well water could ever give. Paradise is only reopened through the cross. There's only uh, one way back into God's paradise, and it's a very narrow way. It's only through the cross. It's only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.15, speaking of Jesus, says, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You want God's promises. You want God's blessings. The only way to get them is through the mediation of Jesus. That means you have a go-between. He's the middleman between you and God the Father. He is the one who represents you to God, and he's the one who speaks on God's behalf to you. And only through his death can our transgressions be redeemed and forgiven so that we might inherit the promise of eternal life. Friends, if I could encourage you uh, with anything, Revelation 22 is meant to be an encouraging chapter. But one thing I want to encourage you with from this chapter, learn to love the cross. Learn to love the cross. Don't just look at Revelation 22 as it is for all these wonderful promises and blessings. Remember how they come about. Remember how you have access to them. Remember what it took to accomplish this for you. You go read the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and chapter 4. God placed an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance of the Garden of Eden so that no one could come back in there. It took the blood of his son to reopen that way again. It took the blood of his only begotten, well-beloved son, the only innocent man who's ever lived. It took the blood of his son dying on the cross for sinners to reopen that way to paradise again. So friend, learn to love the cross. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Learn to love it. And learn to love your crosses too. Learn to love your crosses too. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, it's not just the cross of Jesus that we want to learn to love. It's my own cross. The daily cross that you and I are called to bear as we follow Christ. Learn to love that cross too. Not for its own sake, 
Not because you love pain, not because you're some kind of a masochistic personality. That's not what you're called to. But you are called to love the cross because through it, you come to Christ. Through it, you encounter the living God. The great English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves, all the struggles, all the trials of life, all the pain and the suffering, all of the anxiety and the things that cause you to not sleep at night, all of these things that are hard about life. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss them because they dashed me up against the rock of ages. I have learned to love anything that makes me closer to Christ, that makes me more like him, that draws me closer into intimacy with God. It is astounding to me how many Christians you can talk to who go through horrific things, cancer and lengthy chemo treatments. You'll go talk to them and you'll say, what was it like? And they'll say, I came out better than I went in. I never felt God was as close to me as when I was going through that chemotherapy, that radiation treatment. I never felt like God was as real to me as he was real to me when I went through that suffering. Friends, we enter paradise only through the cross and so learn to love the cross. Boast in nothing but the cross. Paul teaches us this in Galatians 6, 14. God forbid, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The only thing Paul boasted in. You think of all the things that Paul accomplished, the churches he planted, the preaching he did, the suffering he endured for the sake of Christ, the people that were saved because of his ministry, the the future pastors who were trained because of his training and discipling of them. In a very real sense, the Apostle Paul is one of the bedrocks of 2,000 years of Christian history. In a very real sense, you don't have Christianity without the Apostle Paul. And what does Paul say he boasts in? Nothing except the cross. God forbid that I boast in anything else. God forbid that I start looking at my own accomplishments, my own achievements, my own good works, and start boasting in them. God forbid that I would ever boast in those things. Those aren't the things that reopened paradise for you, Christian. Taking your children out of the government school system and homeschooling them is not what reopened paradise for you. Entering full-time Christian ministry, teaching a Sunday school class, taking on suffering in this life, working really hard to provide for your wife and children, none of those things reopened paradise for you. It's not that they're bad. They're not bad. Those are wonderful things, but don't boast in them. Don't make them the focal point of your boasting. Don't think that you're going to stand before God on the day of judgment and point to those things as the source of your salvation. Paul is indicating when I stand before God on the day of judgment, the only thing I'm going to boast in is the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of my Savior. That alone is what I can stand on. And by that cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We learn to kiss the cross because only through the cross is paradise reopened. Finally, we see in this text that paradise is restored. Everything that we lost because of sin, 
everything that was undone by Adam is restored by Christ. He promises that he will give living water to the one who is thirsty. Christ restores all things in heaven and on earth. And it's, it's not just a restoration. It's an improvement. It's even better than it was before. If you look and contrast Genesis 1 through 3 with Revelation 21 and 22, you see that Christ doesn't just hit the reset button. It's not just as though he sort of resets all things and, all right, let's give it another go. He accomplishes what Adam was supposed to accomplish. So you see, for example, that in Genesis 1 through 3, Adam and Eve live in a garden, an untamed, unkept garden, and God charges them to give order to it. Right? Tend it and keep it. Well, what do you find in Revelation 21 and 22? You don't find just a simple garden. You find a garden city. You find a city that is filled with this living garden. You don't just find one tree of life. We read about trees of life flanking all the roads of this new Jerusalem, being watered by this river of life, these trees of life that flank the streets of the new Jerusalem and not bearing fruit just once. But John says they bear fruit every month of the year. John, they're using a, a clear image to indicate that these trees are always flesh and fresh and flourishing. There's never a time when they don't bear fruit. And the fruit is for your eternal life. Even the leaves of these trees are worthwhile. You know, uh, if you study botany, that most fruit trees, uh, their leaves aren't good for a whole lot. But the leaves of these trees are for the healing of the nations. This river that flows with living water coming out of the throne of God and the Lamb, restoring all things, making all things right again, accomplishing all things that Adam was meant to accomplish, now truly forever achieved in Christ. And that living water flowing out, watering all the earth, the intimacy with God that we lost because of our sin, perfectly restored. Look again. At verse 4, John said they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Man has not seen the face of God since we were cast out of Eden. But all people will see his face in the new Jerusalem and his name will be written on our foreheads. I take that to mean that God will so seal us that there's never a chance of falling away from him ever again. It's not just that Christ hits the reset button and we get a do-over. He achieves it so that there is no more chance of sin ever interrupting this perfect relationship ever again. Friends, this is the reality. God's intention for you is to know him. God's intention for your life is to come to him. God's intention for your life is to be reconciled to him in Christ. That means that you who are far off need to be brought near to God through Jesus Christ. And the only way to do it is through personal reception of him. Only receiving him is sufficient. God's intention for you is to be transformed by the renewing power of his Holy Spirit in you. And the only way that you do that is by drinking deeply of Christ's living water. See, that woman at the well, she went out for that well water. But Jesus said to her, if you knew who was standing in front of you, you would ask him for living water and he'd give it to you freely. Jesus said elsewhere in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, 
he stood in the midst of a crowd and he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, drink me. Come drink me. We're going to study in the Sunday school this morning, in the adult Sunday school, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Well, he is also the living water. And he promises to quench the thirst of anyone who comes to him thirsty. Friends, we don't just kiss the cross. We've got to learn to drink deeply of Jesus Christ. Drink deeply of Jesus. This is what we will do for all eternity. This is what John is seeing in Revelation 22. We have talked about how he uses a great deal of symbolic language to communicate truths about what we're going to experience in eternal life. I do not know uh, if, if this is a literal description, excuse me, of what the new Jerusalem will look like or if there is a multitude of symbolic language being used here. But one thing I know from this text without any doubt is that the greatest blessing of eternal life is not the golden streets and it's not the, the flowing waters and it's not even the tree of life. The greatest blessing of eternal life is face to face with God, enjoying fellowship with my Savior. That is what will make heaven so worth it. That is what will set all of our suffering in, in minuscule form. It will diminish all of the things that we have endured because Jesus will be so worth it. Jesus didn't say if anyone thirsts, let him do good deeds, let him come to church, let him join the church. He didn't say if anyone thirsts, let him read his Bible, let him pray. He says, let him come to me and drink. Now, how do we drink deeply of Jesus? Well, first of all, believe that he is who he says that he is. And believe that he has done what he said he would do. Jesus said in John chapter 6, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So believe the words that he speaks to you. If you would drink deeply of Jesus, you must spend time in his word. You cannot know the Christ of the Bible apart from the Bible. So read the Bible privately as individuals. Read the Bible as families. Read the Bible together in the gathering of the saints. Hear the Bible as we read it Sunday after Sunday. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 2 says, as newborn babes, Desire the pure milk of God's word that you may grow thereby. There is a blessing attached to the reading of God's word that you will not experience without it. Fathers especially, husbands, let me encourage you. In your homes, read your family the Bible. Read the Bible every day to your wife and children if they're still in the home. Read the Bible by yourself. Read the Bible together. Study God's word. Meditate on it, ingest it, drink it every day. And read it and receive it with the intention to obey what it says. James 1, James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Don't just read the Bible for the sake of checking the box. 
read the Bible looking for how can I obey what Jesus tells me to do here. If I want to drink deeply of Jesus, I have to drink him as my Savior and my Lord. Friends, if you would drink deeply of Jesus, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Paul says, for this reason, I bow the knees to the Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Be regular in your prayers with God. Don't think that the busyness of life is more important than your prayers. I remember a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther would spend a lot of time in his day praying, and he would say that on a particularly busy day, he'd wake up and he'd say, I'm so busy today, I must spend an extra hour in prayer. Well, why? Martin Luther didn't like to waste time. Martin Luther understood that the only way to face all of the busyness and the challenges that he had was in the power of God that he could only get through prayer. See, if you want to share in this wonderful blessing, if you want to enter this life that God has for you, if you want to be transformed through the living water that only Christ can give you, you've got to be constant in prayer. You've got to be in the presence of God. Share regularly in the fellowship of his church. Ephesians 4 says that Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, to edify the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To experience the living waters that Christ gives is a, a, a thing that will drive you into a community and a fellowship. Because God never intended us to live life alone. And finally, if we want to truly experience the presence of Christ, if we want to drink deeply of Jesus, we must seek to share him with others. That Samaritan woman, that woman who met Jesus at the well, at first she was resistant to Christ. But once she received salvation through him as the Messiah, what's the first thing that she does? John tells us, John 4, the woman then left her water pot. The thing that she came out to do, the thing that drove her to the well that morning, she left her water pot empty and went back to her city. And she said to the men of her city, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The Bible says they, the men of that city, went out and came to him. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Again, Jesus says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, the living water that John sees in Revelation 22, it flows out from the throne of God. But as it touches your life, it transforms you so that you now out of your heart will have rivers of living water flow. Friends, God intends to make you his instruments of transformation. He wants to transform your life so that then through your life, he can transform the lives of others as well. We can't do that if we can't share Jesus. When this woman drinks deeply of the living waters of Christ, when she gets a foretaste of what John sees in Revelation 22, the first thing she wants to do is go tell somebody about it. She wants to go share with the men of her city this reality. I have found someone 
And, and notice what she's not ashamed to say. She's not ashamed to say, he told me everything I ever did. He told me my sin. She's not thinking about her own self-image anymore. She's not thinking about how to cover up the secret sin life that she's living anymore. She's living a life of openness now because she has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And now through the living water that Christ has given her, she becomes a fountain of living waters, sharing that life with everyone around her. That's what John, I believe, intends to communicate in that verse 17, the last verse we read there. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And then he says, let him who hears say, come. Friends, you hear today, do you not? You hear the voice of your Savior calling you to come to Him, calling you to drink deeply of His living waters. And now God calls you to go say, come. And let him who is thirsty come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is the blessing that God has for us in eternal life. And you and I have the blessing of sharing in it now. You don't have to wait until eternity to start experiencing the blessings that John speaks of in these verses. That living water is available for you today, friends. That living water is available through Christ today. And all who come to him today will receive a welcome and drink the water of his life freely. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful blessing that it is to have your word in a language we can understand. Oh Lord, please bless us as we have read and considered your word this morning. Father, I pray that in the midst of my meager efforts and Lord, the weakness of my flesh, I pray, Lord, that your people would have heard some word of truth, some promise that can work in our hearts to draw us closer to Christ, to encourage us to come and drink of his living waters. Oh, Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit's work among us, we would truly become fountains of living water, that our hearts would overflow with the living water that Christ has shared with us today. And Lord, I pray as we go into another week that we would be blessed to share that living water with someone else. That we might go out as the bride of Christ saying to all around us, come, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Come meet a God who knows all of my sins. Come meet a God who knows all of my failures and who forgives all of them for the sake of His Son. And who welcomes me back into His presence with open arms. Lord, make us bold in that proclamation of truth. Make us bold to share that truth in love with everyone around us and guide us, Lord, until that day when we inherit that new heavens and new earth, the blessed assurance, the blessed inheritance that you are storing up for us in heaven, even now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have that confidence that you are right now preparing a place for us in heaven in eternal life. Oh Lord, until that day, keep us faithful, Help us to walk, take up our cross daily, and to look to your cross always. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.